Backed empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Backed to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty, and rewards points and gift cards. Go to backedbakkt.com and start treating your digital assets just like cash. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today we have a very special episode. This is the first, I guess you can call it on-site. It's on-site enough since I had to get on a plane to New York. We're here with Mike Belshi, CEO, co-founder of BitGo. And we've got the Mainnet Conference Mania on the backdrop. Mike we were sort of lamenting before we turned on the mics about how it's kind of ridiculous that you haven't been on the show yet, but here you are now. Mainnet's happening. We're opening up. Crypto, despite today's price action, is booming. I'll start with a very simple question, which an editor of mine used to ask interviewers or interviewees every time he started a conversation, which is, how is business? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Thanks for having me here, Frank. Um, we go way back, and it's good to finally be on the show. I guess I'll, I'll consider it my fault for not having having reached out more about this. But um, business is uh, business is great. You know, it's been a it's been a really strong year in spite of the pandemic. I guess past year and a half now. I think when you look at what's going on in the industry and climate, there had already been tremendous interest in crypto. A lot of institutional players started really digging deep back in the 2017, 2018 timeframe, they weren't quite ready. Companies like BitGo have been continuing to just build and knock down barriers, whether that's regulatory, whether that's security, whether that's some other form of trust. And then when the pandemic hit and the government turned to its one and only response to crisis, which is to print lots of money, um, it's made everybody in the institutional space in particular really think, what am I going to do in order to protect uh, my funds or what am I going to do in order to protect my returns and, uh, and how are things going to go forward? Anyway, the net result of that in, is, you know, it's, it's uh, of course, a bit of a tragedy, I guess, at the, the human level. And that's unfortunate. Um, but in terms of the crypto business, you know, things have been really strong. So obviously, you know, there is this acquisition, I think, in the work. So clearly there is a business here that is attractive to an acquiring or merging firm. How would you quantify that growth? Like, I know you guys are closely held as a private company, but, you know, can you share like asset growth or counterparty growth? Obviously, there's BitGo is more wide ranging than it once was lending prime. How can you sort of quantify that growth? Yeah. Um, well, we've seen growth pretty much on all fronts. Um, 
We don't share our revenue numbers, but they've been really strong as evidenced by our hiring. So we've, we've more than doubled the company uh, just in the last uh, nine months or so uh, in terms of number of, of people. I, uh, I sometimes joke that as CEO, I haven't been investing enough in R&D when we're profitable because frankly, our goal is to invest every single dollar we have into uh, continued innovation and drive, drive forward. On the custody front, uh, we exceeded uh, 40 billion assets under custody earlier this year. It's dropped a little bit as the price of uh, digital assets have gone down, but uh, the, the number of assets in, in custody continue to, to rise healthily. Um, the prime business is also growing very well uh, in large part due to the institutional side uh, starting to come to the table. But also having a really strong offering on on trade now, we have uh, I think probably one of the best smart order routers out there, so we can get you a really good good price. But on top of that, you can trade straight out of cold storage, so um, you can trade twenty four seven while not having to compromise security at all. And I think we're we're the first in the industry to really make that fully available. So uh, anyway, overall the metrics are, are are all in pretty good shape, and uh, we're we're pretty pleased with regard to Galaxy. You know, very happy with Mike Novogratz and his team there. We see the next, you know, 12, 24 months as continued push into the institutional space and moreover uh, into the institutional side of uh, traditional finance, um, where we're starting to see the large investment banks, we're starting to see big funds, we're seeing pensions, endowments, all looking to have some amount of exposure to crypto. The fine team at Galaxy has a lot of strength kind of on that side of the house. Bitco's more of a crypto native uh, type of company and combining the two firms makes a ton of sense in terms of... Uh, executing on all fronts of, um, of crypto. I have to sort of be considerate of the listener who has not had the pleasure of having BitGo on the podcast yet. We've done a lot of panels with BitGo and, and virtual webinars during this COVID era, if you will. But maybe for listeners who haven't been reading my byline or following the BitGo story as closely as we both have, this has been a journey, right? Like BitGo didn't start out as a financial services firm, and it's certainly what you guys want to be known as today. You know, is more maybe of a of a software firm, kind of hearkening on your past career um, at various technology companies. How has that transitioned? You know, maybe just tell the story a little bit, and and um, you know what have been the headwinds and tailwinds of of that journey? Sure. Well, thanks for asking, because I think it's been fun, and I think it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, so I'm a technologist by, by background and by nature. I spent you know, 25 years in Silicon Valley. I was uh, at Netscape when it went public back in 1995. I think you were with Andreessen with Mark, right, at that time? Yeah, both uh, Mark Andreessen and also Ben Horowitz, a um, mm. number of others. I mean, there were so many great people that worked at Netscape in those early days. But uh, did a number of startups kind of in the interim, uh, founded my own company called Lookout, sold that to Microsoft. And then uh, landed at Google, where I was one of the first 10 guys on the, on the Chrome browser team. Found a very exciting time as we made browsers a lot different uh, in terms of their platform capabilities from, from prior. That's where I got a lot of security experience. Um, I also, along that way, invented a protocol uh, called Speedy at the time, which we, we then turned into HTTP 2.0. Uh, so I'm the lead author of the uh, the HP 2.0 specification. So strong technology background is where I come from. Um, I got excited about crypto and uh, started trying to secure it and store it for my my friends initially, and that turned into a problem that was still pretty hard. Um, and it it led to the creation of Bitco, pioneered multi-signature as a uh, process and a technical solution. 
I think multi-signature is pretty much kind of the de facto gold standard these days uh, in terms of what exchanges and others do to protect their assets. So we very much started with a heavy technology focus. Were you like storing it for your friends? What, what was the story? I know there's like a specific anecdote about you kind of like having it under your bed or maybe, maybe I'm remembering it incorrectly. That's right. I got curious about Bitcoin. Uh, I had a number of friends here in Silicon Valley that uh, were also excited about it, helped them uh, make their first purchases. I don't know if you remember, there was a uh, an exchange called Trade Hill that existed way back then. Jared Kenna and others had created. It was uh, one of the early ones where we, we started buying some Bitcoin. And, uh, and then, you know, as the, the price of the asset went went up, you know, and I had, you know, many millions of dollars kind of in, in my own homegrown cold storage. And it was a secure laptop underneath my couch with the backup keys printed and stored in the laundry room. Uh, I decided that wasn't a very good plan. Um, it had started out more modest, but it turned into something pretty big. So that's what led me to to start looking into, there's got to be a better way. And that's what led to, to the multi-signature foundation that we that we live on today at BitGo. So in a sense, uh, laundry is somehow tied to the history of crypto custody. Well, I don't want to be associated with that word at all. Um, oh, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> in case Gary Gensler might be listening, we definitely talk about the regulatory landscape at some point. But first off, with regard to multi-signature, I mean, part of the problem is just like my house could burn down. My kids could spill Coke on that laptop. You know, I could turn that thing on and get malware. Like all of these were real problems. And I was really worried about, in particular, the malware component uh, that partly comes out of having worked at Google, where we were just watching you know, the incidence of malware just go exponentially up uh, across the globe. And by the way, I haven't seen the stats for a few years, but I'll bet you it's the exact same thing today. Like the the attack vectors out there, um, the bad actors are nothing but growing. So, And it's not just the bad actors, though. Like it is human sort of, this is kind of a digression, but one of the most stressful outings I ever had was I brought the wrong phone on a kayaking trip and I wasn't sure if I like had put it properly in my, you know, I don't know if you've ever, if anyone who's listening has gone kayaking, but, and I'm like, holy shit, like I didn't see the bag on the back of my kayak. And I was like, all right, is the phone with like X amount of crypto, like in that bag, is it lost at sea? Is it on some other kayak? And like, that's not even thinking about all of these different, like malware, different type of attack vectors, just human sort of like idiocy in, in a sense. Well, you know, I, I love it. You're hitting all the marketing points for, for Bitco and multisig, but you're right. It protects against both theft and loss. And as humans, you know, we get more emotional and worried about theft, but we forget about how easy loss is, you know. Um, and if you have your digital assets stored on a single key and you lose that key for whatever reason, it could be in your wet bag or not in your wet bag, it could uh, be your house burns down, you forget the password to it. I mean, all of these things happen uh, with incredible frequency. It turns out that as humans, we're really not very good at securing things. And we've known this since before digital assets. We used to joke about, you know, the password that's literally <laughs> written on a sticky tab and stuck to the monitor. These are things that real people do. You know, I think the most common password to this day is still password or something like that, right? So unfortunately, when it comes to thinking through security for billions of dollars uh, of assets, you have to go to the nth degree. And that means you are thinking about all of these different threat vectors, plus all of the different ways that you can fail. And how do you store those backups in ways that A, no single person, no two people can can take it, but B, you know, what happens if any of your systems fail? How do you have, have redundancy? So multi-signature provides a really good facility for this. 
where we can project against both theft and loss. And in those early days, we did it all in a non-custodial fashion. By the way, this is still available. Uh, many of our clients use this today. So we hold a single key and our clients can hold multiple keys. And so that means that clients can move the money. Bitco can disappear off the face of the earth. Clients can still access the money. And we're just providing a service where they've pre-programmed a set of policies, a set of uh, rules, constraints, it could be whitelists or spending amounts or people that have to approve transactions. They can figure that with us. We make sure that that all gets enforced and run. Um, and yet they can still have their keys. Um, we then can consult and, and help them with, you know, how do you store those in appropriate manners and things like that. How does, I think most listeners, this idea of like anxiety around the safety and security of their, of their holdings, that will resonate with any listener. How does it look differently for an institution, right? And, you know, you, you guys kind of went through your own history of going from maybe more crypto native to more institutions. And even the institutions that were once crypto native now are like among the largest investors, right? Going from, you think of like the names like Paradigm or Pantera were once managing hundreds of millions or now billions are now managing billions of dollars. How do they think about security, custody, and how do you serve them? Right. So in those early days, we were providing all technology and we were non-custodial, kind of a software provider. And then as the industry grew, fiduciaries, um, which is people that are holding money in a legal way on behalf of somebody else, started looking for solutions. And for them, a non-custodial option uh, that, or custodial to them option um, mm -hmm. is a very difficult place to be, right? If they screw up and lose the ledger device or the house burns down or whatever, they're on the hook in a legal way for that. And if they are later found to have not provided uh, sufficient competence around how the, that security is done, you know, not only is their reputation trash, but legally they can be in trouble and things like that. So we've never had an asset class where you want to have the fiduciary, the guy that's trading on your behalf or whatnot, actually hold the asset as well. And although there's been a few cases where that has happened, you know, frankly, by mishap, they, they can end in disaster. Biggest example there, of course, is Bernie Madoff. He was trading, allegedly, but he was also doing self-custody. And he, he said quite publicly, look, if anyone had ever required me to use a third-party custodian, I never could have perpetrated this crime. So that's all, all out there and known. And yet in crypto, you know, one of the great things about it is that it's decentralized. You can hold it yourself. But when it comes to fiduciary duties, you really do need something else. You can't be holding someone else's money uh, without going through extra extra steps and extra extra detail. So when we went through the, the transition and change to start supporting not just the non-custodial you know, software offering, but also adding in the mechanisms to ha handle you know, really bona fide custody. And uh, we became a state charter trust. Uh, it was our, our first entry point. I think we were the first independent custodian to do that. And we started helping build market structure. And, and for those that have traded stocks, you probably know that there's, you know, brokers and exchanges and clearing houses, they're all different. But for the most part, you don't know how that market structure works unless you're kind of in, in the business, so to speak. But in crypto, we don't have that. And on one hand, that's really great. That's fewer middlemen, it's more efficient, all that. On the other hand, it's a set of checks and balances that are missing. And when institutional investors start coming in and looking at crypto and saying, how do I participate? They're looking to make sure that like they aren't going to have counterparty risk on the exchange. And unfortunately, and this is true to this day, you know, the exchanges operate as kind of one-stop shops. They're the broker for the buyer, the broker for the seller, they're the exchange, they're the clearinghouse, they're the custodian. They do it all. 
very efficient again. But for institutional investors, it's a pretty tough place to be. So we became an independent custodian. We're regulated currently in both South Dakota and New York, OCC federal level coming and uh, continuing to remain independent from the trading piece as we're trying to help build that separation of duties and that institutional market structure that you would expect in an institutional asset class. Well, this gives me an opportunity to attempt to ask what I, I think one of the hardball questions, but this aspect of independence, this aspect of you know not being, dare I say, comparable to a Coinbase is something that's been part of your firm selling point. But with the acquisition, um, you know, you will be sort of operating under the auspices of an asset manager and a trading firm, a proprietary investor. So does that does that put a wedge in sort of this notion of BitGo as an independent custodian, even if Galaxy itself is not an exchange venue? Yeah, actually, that's not a hard question at all. Um, and the answer is no, we're not creating a conflict of interest. So we're, the main thing is that we're, we're not an exchange. And the second thing is, is that, you know, the market structure for crypto is going to continue to evolve. So the early days before we started down this effort, if you asked me about market structure, I said, there's nothing we could do. It's a boiling the ocean problem. How can you get like a, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, brokers or FCMs? How do you get a whole bunch of exchanges and DCMs all, all at the same time? You know, and that, that's hard. So what's happening, and we're seeing it right now, is an evolution where you start to separate these functions, and they can be done uh, quite cleanly. So even within BitGo today, to some degree, you could say, do we have this problem? We do custody, and we enable access to trade. Now, if we're in any other asset class, as a custodian, you would plug into a network, a fabric of other market providers, and there's plenty of ways to trade in digital assets because the market structure is missing. That's not there. So when we became a custodian, it's like, okay, well, you can store it here, but how do you trade it? And of course, you want to have access to trade. Of course, you want to have access to liquidity. These are 24-7 markets, and you need to have that. So as, our, as a custodian, it's our responsibility to make sure that that can come together. We do that today. We don't operate an exchange, but we then operate you know, BitGo Prime, which is a separate entity. Um, it's separate from the custodian. Uh, it's not part of that at all. Separate controls, separate people, everything. And then we provide a smart order router where you can have access to the other venues to trade. So even as we grow into Galaxy, that same model, those same separations of duty exist. You can operate with us just as a custodian and you can continue to trade at other exchanges um, or you can also trade through a broker or you know, through Galaxy's prime offering or Bitcoin's prime offering. Those all still exist, but it is separation of duties. And it's all kind of in line with continuing to build a market structure that's stronger than what we have today. Back is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Back puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send or spend them using Back. Get started today and get it together with Back. Sign up at backbakkt.com. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. 
I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone, and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at Exodus.com today. One thing that I think is a bit thorny or has always been confusing, at least from my perspective um, as a journalist, something that's hard to report on is the question of insurance. But I know you guys like talking about it and it's kind of like, you know, it's sort of very much connected to this idea of, you know, what happens if there's some sort of like act of God event, which I think is the like almost the proper terminology for these crazy events that might result in you know, assets being lost or whatever have you. How has that evolved? Uh, it's a great question. So sadly, the insurance market not related to crypto is a terribly opaque and antiquated system, which makes the whole thing even harder. Now at Bitco, we're trying to make it very simple in terms of describing the offering that we have. It's a challenge because the industry itself has so many T's and C's behind any given insurance policy, and most people don't see those. It's really hard to compare two insurance policies. Like here's insurance policy A and insurance policy B. They both cover 100 million bucks. Which one's better? Um, well, it depends on what types of things they cover. So look, we try to be as straightforward as we can um, with our clients about here's exactly what's covered and here's what's not. Is that a huge impediment for investors? Like, you know, when they come to you and they're like, all right, I want to buy or custody X hundred million plus worth of crypto, but the insurance question makes it's too thorny. Um, the different clients are, are looking for different amounts of detail on it, um, but we we share exactly like, hey, here's, here's exactly what our insurance program is. Um, so they have a good understanding of it and they can figure out whether that that's what, what they're looking for or not. I think the problem with crypto is that it's so new. Most people are looking for, how do I trust a provider around this? So first off, you know, who's running it? Second, you know, what's the technology that's used behind it? Third is what's the regulatory climate? And the fourth is what are your backup systems in case something fails, right? So that, that's where insurance comes in. And it starts with just a discussion of what's practical and, and realistic. So here's, here's the, the reason why people would obviously get confused about, you know, BitGo's insurance, right? I, I mean, I mentioned earlier, we got 40 billion in custody. You can't get a $40 billion insurance policy. Not gonna happen. There's nobody to underwrite it. The, the estimated you know, total underwriting capacity from grade A insurers in the crypto space is you know, somewhere between two and a half and $4 billion. That's it, right? So, and everybody's competing for that. BitGo, Coinbase, you know, everybody else. So how do you insure something like this? Well, the good news is we can start to employ some technology. And the other part of it is just you got to be realistic about what's covered and what's not. So for, for BitGo, what we do is we start out, we have a $100 million base layer, and we purchase that, BitGo does, on behalf of our clients. And then the second thing you do is we separate our clients' assets into wallets that are less than or equal to $100 million each. Um, so we, we spread it around. And then the, the concept there is that it's relatively unlikely that you're going to have a correlated loss between two wallets. I'm not saying it can't happen. I mean, in order to have it completely uncorrelated, you have to have separate software, separate controls, separate people all the way up and down the stack. And we do not have that. 
but you know, we describe what we do to our clients and they get comfortable with, with what levels are appropriate for them. So, but look, I think the second thing you'd run into, even if you had larger and larger overall coverage limits, you'd run into questions of like, well, gee, if a uh, $50 billion custodian could get a single insurance program, do you think there's any underwriter that would actually write that check ever? And, and, and I think the answer is probably unlikely, right? So anyway, it's a complicated answer. It gets better over time. We're continuing to increase today. We've got both the base layer, the 100 million that I described, but we've also got an additional 600 million that our clients have purchased uh, for themselves with Bitco. So I think we're the largest insurance consumer in the crypto space, bar none, $700 million of actually paid for written premiums. But uh, this is a place we continue to drive forward and make it stronger and make it better. The fact that you can get uh, insurance underwriters to say, we're going to back you for $700 million, I think says a lot about how they look at the Bitco technology. And I assure you, the, the underwriters have taken a deep, hard look uh, and examined us thoroughly as much as or in excess of any regulator. Well, that kind of dovetails very nicely into a topic I want to unpack with you. Since I first was introduced to the firm, you guys were either in the process of getting that Dakota Trust license or had just gotten it, you know, four or three years ago, or maybe even longer than that. I can't remember. Time has kind of meshed together. 2018. Well, I think, well, no, it was definitely earlier than that. This idea of you guys trying to be regulatorily, if that's a word, compliant came into my picture. Now we're kind of in a different regulatory arena that we're participating in. And we've seen kind of Coinbase at the kind of getting the brunt of those new inquiries, if you will. Let me be very candid and straightforward. Do you think that the SEC is being overly aggressive? And how does BitGo navigate that? Obviously, you're not dealing as much with retail, so it's a different picture. But is it something that maybe keeps you up at night? Well, Bitco's problem is is different um, than Coinbase. Coinbase is a retail exchange. Uh, so you hit on retail. The other thing is exchange or so trading. Um, so the types of things they're going to run into are just different than us. We're about security. We're about storage and custody. Issues that apply to us are different. I don't think anyone in the crypto space should be that surprised that regulators are needing a ton of help with education on figuring out how do they regulate this effectively. So you know some of the up and down on on different regulatory actions that, that happen or questions that happen aren't really surprising. I think all of us in the space are a little bit impatient. Uh, we certainly want it to be better, but I don't, I don't know that we could expect it to be a lot faster. Now, we've been asked by pretty much every regulator here in the United States, you know, what do we think it should be, how they should approach the problem and what they should do. In general, I mostly think it would be great if the regulators just applied the same rules to Bitcoin and digital assets that they apply to other asset classes. But I've also been starting to change that view a little bit because of a few specific points uh, that start to come into play when you think of like travel rule or even smart contracts. The difference is that the capabilities available to a regulator with an open and transparent blockchain are fundamentally superior to anything that we've seen in any other asset class. Um, and in fact, you could almost ask yourself, like, why do regulators exist? Well, regulators are here to protect us from certain things. You can you can argue about that a little bit. But, you know, if you had to stack rank, I'd put three things down. You know, one is to protect investors from bad actors. Uh, another one is prevent money laundering. Uh, another one is to uh, make sure people pay their taxes, right? And whether you like that or not, I think I think that does cover a lot of ground that regulators are trying to 
to improve upon. So, so travel rule, for instance, was something that regulators felt they needed. I think it first came to be in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm not quite sure. And uh, they, they thought they needed it to help you know, combat money laundering and things like that. That was in the fiat world, right? And it was also at a time when hacking was a lot different than it is today. Um, we've certainly seen hacks not related to crypto from uh, Facebook's been hacked, Google has been hacked, US government's hacked, Equifax has hacked, a lot, of, a lot of dangers. So when you think about the travel rule today, and if you think about applying it to crypto, it would create a tremendous amount of information that all institutional participants, you know, like a BitGo would need to collect. And that would create these honeypots of information. I think the government, uh, the regulators, I think they should be thinking today about the context we live in today. And in the 90s, they didn't have this, you know, honeypot hacking capability or, or worry. They didn't know about it yet. But today we do. So to create new laws that could introduce new honeypots, I think is particularly dangerous. And the second point I have about travel rule is that when you share information between sending and receiving financial institutions uh, in fiat, you don't have a blockchain behind it. So in our industry, you do. And if you tell the receiver who the sender is, they can now associate that sending address or set of addresses with that sender, which means not only do you know who the sender was, but you can now also start to use blockchain analytics to go figure out how much money that sender has. And that was never possible with fiat. So if you think about the technological capabilities of digital assets today, and then you start to think about how do we accomplish things like, you know, preventing money laundering. The blockchain is already a huge tool. Not money laundering. <laughs> Correct. But I hope you get what I'm saying, right? Which is that I think we can rethink the rules. You've unpacked two, probably three really important points from my perspective. The first of which being that the, the way in which regulators view this space is probably not in a monolith. We often think about regulators are either cracking down or they're not cracking down. But there is this like third way, if you will, of the fact that you look at something like, you know, this incident we saw with OpenSea and not without casting too much judgment, but it was immediately evident that something was happening on the blockchain. And it was not from a regulator who identified this or an FBI agent or uh, investigative reporter. It was some random person on Twitter, an anonymous account who was able to say, hey, there is some activity happening and I can see it and identify it on the blockchain tied to this executive at a firm in the space. And let's not make this just about OpenSea, but, you know, and not to be too cliche, and obviously there's a lot of things about crypto that are unfortunate, but that is the beauty of the blockchain. And that's something that I think regulators probably would embrace. It's undoubtedly true. So like, you know, when you're filing SARS, suspicious activity reports, which is what FinCEN requires. And by the way, everybody in the United States is subject to the BSA, the Bank Secrecy Act, right? So if you see suspicious activity, you're required to support it, report it. That's a 14 day window to go report that, right? Whereas the block, and that's just a report like manually fill out a form. With the blockchain, you got real time access. And we've seen a number of incidents like this where fact checkers or, you know, people watching can look for events on the blockchain and see them in near real time. And that was never possible in the opaque systems that we had with our traditional finance. And the OpenSea example is just the latest, the latest one of those. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. We need to have uh, regulators think about, wait a minute, we've got this huge tool. Let's use that 
And now can we actually lighten? Can we go the other direction? Can we lighten the burden and thus increase the innovation and what they do in a go forward basis for crypto? But then there's a double-edged sword. There's obviously an opportunity for regulators to embrace crypto, but obviously one opportunity for them to basically bucket everything into the security category. So what happens if someone like Gary Gensler or Gary Gensler himself, I don't know who else would sort of be there to do this, but were to deem, let's say the vast majority or the majority of assets that BitGo custodies as securities, does that change anything for you? If they say most of these are securities, how does BitGo address that, adjust that? And do you think that'll happen? Well, first off, I mean, as, as a custodian, it doesn't actually impact us. Like we're able to custody securities and it's not, it's, it's not a problem. In terms of uh, enabling trade with other parties, we'd have to look at that a little bit differently. But again, we're not the trader, so probably doesn't impact us either. Now, I think if this were to happen suddenly, you know, say in a short time period from now, I don't think it will. But if it did, I think the immediate effect would be that a lot of digital asset business would move offshore. Um, I think the U.S. would be locking out Americans from participating safely. I think the regulators would be locking themselves out of being able to regulate this. One of the things we have to remember is that we are now in a globally connected economy and information age. Regulators, you know, heretofore have really thought about regulation within their jurisdiction only. Of course, that's the only place they have power. But uh, it's been a lot easier to think that way because predominantly that's where your commerce was done. In the go forward basis, it's global. So you can't really shut it off. You can make it not happen within your walls, but uh, you, you can't just shut it down. So I don't think it's likely that they're going to come down with a sweeping rule like that, because I think it would hurt everyone uh, from the investor to the regulator significantly. Yeah, I, I'm sort of of the same opinion. I think ultimately we'll see like some sort of part in the comparison, but pathway to citizenship like avenue for cryptocurrencies or crypto assets that in some ways resemble securities. This, I hope, I really hope for the listener that we, you know, we haven't gone too fast because, you know, obviously, you know, Mike, we've had several, several conversations, panels, coffees. Um, <laughs> so I hope I didn't go through this too quickly for the listener, but I do want to, um, be respectful of your time. I promised that I'd give you some time back and I absolutely haven't at all. I've only wasted it. But if we think about, you know, what you're most excited for going towards the end of the year, what might that be? Well, I'm actually excited to get this, uh, this Galaxy deal closed. Um, you know, we announced- It will close, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we announced it a couple of months ago. It's, it's, it's actually on the original timeline. So, so nothing's really, really changed, but uh, looking forward to having that uh, all done so that we can move forward on building. Um, just for the avoidance of any any doubt, um, I'm joining Galaxy as deputy CEO there, and I'm completely planning to be there for a very long time. So I'm, I'm a huge holder of Galaxy stock once it closes and uh, look forward to making that, that a success. In terms of products and things that we're bringing to market, I mean, it's really all about continuing down the institutional path. But I, I'm also very excited about what's going on in the DeFi space and kind of blending this back with uh, some of the regulation that we've been talking about. And I apologize, this is like a 400 level blockchain course instead of a intro to blockchains. <laughs> but uh, smart contracts, I think, are going to offer up a lot of ability for regulators to do their job better. For instance, when you think back to like, why do we have regulators watching, you know, how brokers behave? And a lot of it's because in the past, there have been bad actors as brokers that 
you know, they'll tell you to buy something while they're simultaneously selling it. Or they might say that they have this thing and they don't. The great thing about smart contracts and DeFi is that it's all in code and it's reviewable by anybody that's out there. So I love this concept that the future regulator might be a software engineer. He's going to be a guy reviewing code. And guess what? He doesn't have to keep coming back to it and re-reviewing it every year because the code doesn't change unless you change the code, right? It just faithfully executes the instructions it ran before. And I, I realize we have bugs that happen, right? And so that's something our industry has to figure out how to deal with. Um, and I think it's getting better with safety pools and stuff like that. But I'm very excited about the DeFi space starting to displace market makers, brokers in ways that are way more transparent, way more trustworthy, need less regulation, run 24-7, give you better prices. I mean, literally, it's all for the better. I get the sense that you're a bit disappointed that we didn't hit on DeFi as much. And I'm disappointed too, because it is something that I think we could have spent another hour talking about. And that gives a great segue for when you come on the show two weeks from now to talk all things Bitcoin, DeFi. But until then, I'd like to thank you so much. This has been one of my favorite episodes. And I'm not just saying that because it's mainnet and I'm back in New York and I got to see you like four times today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Once again, we've been joined by Mike Belshi, co-founder and CEO of BitGo. Mike, for folks, I know <laughs> I'll do you a favor here because I know you've tweeted about it, people looking for jobs and you want to poach from your competitors. Uh, where can listeners learn more about you and what you're doing at BitGo? Great. Well, thanks for having me, Frank. You can find us at uh, BitGo.com. I'm Mike at BitGo.com. we got a jobs page on the website. Reach out any way you wish. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And yes, we're hiring pretty much on all fronts. So Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, The Scoop will be back for you once again, if I can make it through mainnet with a great guest. Hope you have a great day. Talk to you soon.